Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I was very fortunate recently to have the opportunity to talk with Eric Mugler about his recent book called The Paper Road, Archive and Experience in the Botanical Exploration of West China and Tibet. Now, this is a book that's certainly about paper and roads and archive and experience and botany in West China and Tibetan exploration and all of those other things that are in the title, but it's about much more than that. Um, in the course of this book, which is one of the most astounding works that I've read lately and a work that um, I keep going back to and keep recommending to people because it um, influenced me so much when I read it the first time for the purpose of this interview, um, it's a book that moves from the tiniest details, like the labels written on botanical specimens, to the broadest aspects of landscape, to weave a story about how experience and archive and territory kind of co-create each other in the history of China and Tibet um, in this period. It's a wonderful book. I enjoyed it tremendously, and I hope you enjoy uh, our conversation. Hi, Eric. Hi, Carla. So I'm here to talk uh, today with Eric Mugler about his recent book, The Paper Road, Archive and Experience in the Botanical Exploration of West China and Tibet. And that just came out with the University of California Press in 2011. Now, I... This is one of the books um, I've read recently that I didn't just like, but I really, really loved. I took this into the bathtub with me. This was that kind of book. You don't really want to put it down once you've started. And uh, truthfully, and there aren't many books um, in Chinese studies or uh, really East Asian studies that um, one uh, usually feels that way about. Uh, this is an incredibly lyrically written book. Um, it's very eloquent, and it's a very fascinating account of two botanists traveling in Yunnan in the early 20th century um, that gets at the nature of writing, the nature of bodies, the nature of beauty, and the nature of the earth, the nature of what it is to write about and talk about and inhabit and live on and with the earth. Um, and that's no exaggeration. So it's a wonderful book. And Eric, thank you so much for um, being here to talk with us about it today. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So, Eric, could you start us off by uh, saying a little bit about yourself and uh, your background? What got you into this field? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see. What got me into this field? Anthropology? Chinese yeah. studies? Sure, either way. Either <laughs> yeah, way. Right. Actually, it's a little hard. I, I don't have very good answers for those. I, I think I, I got into anthropology because it had the least requirements of any uh, <laughs> any discipline in at uh, Cornell when I was an undergraduate. Um, I I spent a year in uh, Xiamen in southern China after I graduated college, and I had a great time. I traveled to West China when I was there, and I really became fascinated with West China. Um, so I um, for a P PhD project. I worked with uh, E folks 
E are some seven million people who live in uh, Yunnan, Guizhou, Guangxi, and um, and Sichuan. And you know, there are actually a bunch of disparate, very disparate sort of bunch of, of groups. And I, I work with some people in northern Yunnan and wrote a book about them and basically a history of uh, their engagement with the socialist state through, well, with various means, but, but partly through ritual practice. So that was, that was that. And, and when I finished that, oh, you know, careers uh, for anthropologists um, who have to do field work are often difficult because we, you know, we, we want to have kids and stuff too. And I had this little baby and uh, his mom didn't want him to go to the field. And so I couldn't really do a field project. Um, so I started sort of casting around and I had worked a great deal on some exorcism chants in this place that were about sending uh, ghosts off on journeys and they went on, on, on journeys through various places in Northern Yunnan and then off across the nation to Beijing, uh, where, uh, you know, sort of the center of wild ghosts was. Um, and, you know, at, at one point during this project, I was trying to read everything I could in, in every language there was about the history of this very small place, and there was very little. But one of the things there I thought there might be was um, in uh, in literature written by botanists from the West who who wandered across this, these places. And you know, I found a little tiny, tiny bit. So I had some contact with this literature, and. One day in the library, it struck me that there were some interesting parallels between the ways that these botanists were writing about walking around in these areas and the, the ritualized, formalized language that my folks had used to send ghosts around the same, basically the same places. And that's really what got me into this project was thinking about those um, parallels. Maybe that wasn't such a great thought, you know? <laughs> um, and I was just going to write a paper. Um, and somehow I got in really involved. And I wrote um, uh, this book and then several articles about a, another bot botanist as well, um, trying to think about just what it meant to wander around and write about wandering around um, for everybody, uh, for everybody. And everybody um, turned out to include a lot of people, you know, the botanists themselves, but very importantly, people who worked with them and who had a very people, you know, Tibeto-Burman-like kinds of people, people uh, who spoke Tibeto-Burman languages, very similar in many ways to the e-folks that I worked with, um, and who had, it was very clear, their own ways of um, thinking about the, the intersections between language and and the, the, the landscape they lived in. So that's, that's how I got into this. Great. 
And I think one of the really fascinating things that comes out in this book, and when you talk about your background and your training, I mean, this is a, it's very much a book that um, appeal is going to appeal, and I'm sure appeals to, and is written in the vein of um, history, right? I mean, this is, I, I picked this up initially thinking, oh, history, history training. Um, and this is very much a rich, um, multi-layered historical account, but it reads as the kind of account that is informed so much by someone with a training in ethnography and a training in that, that kind of methodology that is, that brings out in this story, the importance of the, of sociality um, and of the lived experience of um, being part of this story and, and traveling and, um, establishing these relationships with each other and with the earth and with text and with language that I think really um, is beautifully informed by that, uh, must be by that kind of background and experience in ethnographic practice. Yes. Okay. So let's get into the book itself. Um, so the book opens with um, a very lyrical description and a very moving description of um, a figure, Zhao Chong uh, Zhang. Um, who's unrolling a sheet of paper that he's purchased in Burma. Now, this um, vignette works to introduce a theme that will be explored in the chapter and the rest of the book, and that's namely the power of paper. Um, and you write about paper for many pages to shape the earth and relationships with it. Um, for listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity to read the book, can you talk a little bit about uh, Zhao and about this scene? Yeah, Sure. So this guy um, was a very accomplished fellow. He came from this t tiny village north of Lijiang. Um, many people have been to Lijiang. Um, at the foot of the Yulongshan, Yulong which is the, the big mountain range that towers above Lijiang in the Lijiang Valley. And he, um, you know, th this was just a little place. I mean, it was just a little dump of a place. But, but, but uh, it was situated on the road or on the path that led uh, really the, the best path to get into the Yulongshan from, from Lijiang, uh, if you were coming from that, from the south, from Lijiang. And, and he happened to um, uh, be one of the people that this Scottish fellow, George Forrest, who part of the book is, is, is about hired when he first entered these mountains. These mountains were places that were already famous botanically. Uh, French uh, priests had collected huge numbers of, of uh, flowers there, uh, particularly primulas. They were really interested in primulas. And Forrest, you know, knew about this and wanted to explore this place. And when he, the first day he went up there, he hired some people. And, he didn't know any of their names, uh, but eventually this guy, uh, who he called Lao Chao, um, became his partner in a way. Became the person who hired all the people who worked for him, and who uh, Forrest entrusted with um, with uh, expeditions uh, that he arranged and organized on his own. Um, and he became an extremely accomplished explorer who covered all of this very rugged, difficult terrain in uh, Northwest United, looking for flowers for British gardens. Um, Horace didn't know his name. The trouble 
with this book for me was I, I really wanted to know about the relationships between these um, British and American botanists and the folks who worked with them. I was really interested in the folks who worked with them. These botanists, you know, could write, well, wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of pages about themselves, their own experience, the flowers, thousands of pages of footnotes. Now and then they wrote something, some things about the folks they worked with, um, mostly just brief, casual notes. And the crowd, really, of people who were extremely important to these botanists really produced almost nothing written. So very few traces remained. And um, it seemed like uh, for quite a while, several years as I worked on this project, that I would actually never know Lao Zhao's name. <laughs> um, because Boris never recorded it, because no one else seemed to, because he never seemed to write anything. I found a thank you note from some, from some, uh, some fellow, uh, I think he was named Lee, a very brief thank you note. Uh, that was one thing I found written by one of these guys. Um, uh, most of these guys were, were Nashi and uh, spoke Chinese. Um, were, some of them were likely literate in Chinese. Well, so uh, I did a lot of work in the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, in the archives there. And I, you know, uh, I worked through all the material that they had on this guy, Forrest, um, which was a lot, just a ton. I mean, uh, really, literally thousands and thousands of pages of stuff. And, um, and did the best I could with it. My last visit to Edinburgh, my final visit to Edinburgh, uh, the lovely, lovely librarians there um, were very, very busy. And they were, they were just too busy to, you know, take the stuff out of the storage room where they had it, the boxes, and, and give them to me. So they let me do that myself. Um, they actually let me work in, in the room, the storage room. And, you know... I'm very curious. <laughs> so I poked around a lot and perhaps more than um, I should have. And on, on a shelf, I found this unlabeled box that just, uh, you know, I opened and it had a stack, a huge stack of letters written um, by Forrest to one of his sponsors that I'd never seen. And I knew about them. They were missing the fellow was that Forrest was writing to was named J.C. Williams and owned an estate in um, in uh, south southwest England. Um, grew a lot of forest rhododendrons. I thought that his letters were on his estate. I wrote the estate about them. They said they had did have some material, but I couldn't see it um, because they didn't hadn't decided what to do with it yet. They were very protective. I, so I thought that these letters were there, but it turns out that they, that this, there was this huge box of letters and in this box, there were some other documents as well. And those were really interesting. One of them was a, an accounts book, really. Um, it was, well, it was three, two or three pages from an accounts book that talked about, uh, that, that was, uh, that, um, that, uh, had columns that showed how much um, was being paid to particular people going off to particular places 
and then coming back. Um, and it also had some other expenses like, uh, you know, just, just, uh, basically, um, memorabilia that they bought. So, you know, uh, uh, or botanic, you know, interesting scientific stuff that they bought the skin of a rat, um, is one thing, um, a crossbow, I think, and some other stuff. So there was this, this, this account and, and one of the, and there were, so there were names and these was, were some of the first names that I actually really found. Um, in addition, there was, uh, to that, there was a set of maps, which were beautiful, um, handwritten maps, hand done maps, clearly done by somebody whose Chinese was pretty good, um, who wrote characters in a very, um, formal hand, not a kind of grass script at all. Um, who was working in a hurry and, um, and who knew this area very well. And through um, a kind of process of working on dates and names, I figured out that Lao Zhao was named Zhao Chengzheng, one of the people in the accounts book. It was pretty clear that the accounts book was, was written by Zhao Chengzheng. And the, it was very clear that the maps as well were drawn by this guy. So that was really nice to find that stuff. And um, I was very excited about it. And that's probably why I started the book with it rather than any kind of, you know, sort of organizational plan. It's just that I just found it so fascinating to finally find uh, um, representations of this landscape that were actually from the hand of uh, hands of one of the people that I was interested in what they actually how they experienced this landscape. It was really great. And these are the maps are amazing, and you describe them as recording a dialogue between Zhao and his patron or his partner, um, Forrest. And in particular, these maps set up a theme that's going to recur really throughout the rest of the book. And um, I'll just quote uh, here from um, the early part of the book about this because it's so much more eloquent that I'm going to be able to paraphrase it. You say this is about how to take perceptions of the earth and forge them into representations of the earth for the empirical archive, and also how to take representations of the earth and make them a guide for perceptions of the earth. And so there's this dialogue, um, as, as well as the, um, the maps being a dialogue between Zhao and Forrest and all the multiple kinds of experiences and background and perceptions and, you know, that that, that entails. There's also this dialogue between perception and representation um, and mapping in its many, many, many forms and writing also in its many, many, many forms and reading in its many, many, many forms, including sort of reading the earth with one's feet, um, which is a lovely phrase that you use later in the book. And this really sets up um, these themes that's, that are going to be uh, come up over and over again for us. So I think um, I loved that. Now, you, you raise a question in this early chapter um, that I think is really arresting, um, both for this kind of context and also just in general. And that's a question of what is a landscape? Um, can you talk about that uh, for us a little bit? What is a landscape? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a lot of people have, have actually worked on this question. There's a, there's a quite big literature on it. Um, and so it is a, a, a rather intimidating question. Um, uh, much of the literature is very learned in, uh, about uh, it's uh, it's about art um, and art history, uh, which is definitely not my field. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I've dealt with this literature. I've taught this literature. Um, 
And really, um, I think for an anthropologist, uh, my, my answer to that question ends up being, as an anthropologist, that a landscape is a social relation. It's a pretty easy answer because for anthropologists, everything is a social relation. So it wasn't that hard to, to get there. Um, um, but uh, the, the approach that I, that I find attractive to thinking about um, the kind of, you know, the, well, the landscape, I, I, I suppose that that term is so loaded, but the landscape is, is one that, does um, that does find it to be to be constructed through perceptions that are perceptions that are embedded in many different kinds of social relationship. Uh, and what's so fascinating about landscapes for me is is that exploring them is exploring the, these sort of histories of social relationships that are actually embedded in built into landscapes. I mean, everything we build. Um, has uh, some kind of history of social relations in it. Um, in in my sort of first uh, book, working with these e folks, you know, they were pretty eloquent about when they talked about the various kinds of stuff around them, and they were eloquent because this all of this stuff just brought to mind. All, every, all these stories about what had happened in the over the past thirty years, and this was the only way I found to really talk about the history of the past thirty years with folks. And it was pretty easy. You just ask them, "Well, what? Tell me about that building, or this little wall, or or this, or the that strange looking rice paddy, or those paddies." And 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 there's just so much embedded in all of that. So that's that's really writing this book was though it was writing about a different kind of landscape often because the explorers who walked through this place were committed to an ideology that made it appear that this landscape was, um, was not full of social relations, that they were actually discovering it for the first time and making it into um, a region for the Imperial Archive, really, which is which is pretty clear that that's that's how they thought of it. Um, so that's an, that was a very kind of shocking thing for me to find was how um, brutally simple <laughs> this complex place seemed to them until they really started getting into it. And then they found it to be um, far more complex than they thought. And so that's one of the tensions I found uh, as I worked through this book is, is, um, the tension between the simplicity on the one hand of this kind of white space on the map and the very complex embedded layered nature of it when you looked at it or tried to look at it from the perspectives of many of the other folks who were traveling across it, living in it and, um, you know, doing other stuff in it. Right. And you actually go on um, in this, the rest of this chapter to introduce two of those folks. And there's, there are two major figures who are going to um, really anchor part one and part two of the book. So I'll ask you to talk about them very um, briefly or as much as you want, really, for our listeners. One of them is George Forrest. 
and the other is Joseph Francis Charles Rock. And just, you know, it's, it has to be said, and then I'll leave it alone, that Forrest and Rock happen to be, you know, per- ironically perfect uh, last names for people who are, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, in a book about nature and the landscape. So I love that. Um, <laughs> so first, let's look at Forrest and George Forrest. Now, he... Um, has this fascinating backstory that includes an early religious education and lots of other stuff I'll ask you to um, talk about a little uh, that culminates in this um, lifetime of arduous travel at one point resulting in the consulate mistakenly writing his mom and his sisters to say that he's died. Of course, he hadn't died at that point, but um, he's he sort of his life becomes this um set of experiences of of travel and journey, but it starts off uh, not so much. Can you talk a little bit about him to introduce him for our listeners? Yeah, well, you've done a good job, Um, Forrest. So this guy, you know, he grew up in these towns in Scotland. Um, His his father died early uh, when he was a kid. He had an older brother who took care of him, was a minister. he did have an early religious education in the sort of evangelistic um, branch of this work uh, of the Scottish um, church. Uh, and that, as it happens, that kind of education is, is one about, about, um, you know, sort of, um, mm-hmm. well, anyway, that there were, he, he came into contact with a lot of missionaries um, who worked in lots of places, but he, um, he really had a difficult time finding his way. He um, had class aspirations uh, because his brother was a minister in part um, that he found it very difficult to fulfill. He um, inherited, you know, like 50 pounds from an uncle and went off to Australia to find gold. Uh, He didn't do so well there. And he inherited something like around 50 pounds from another uncle, which was enough to bring him back. Um, And by the time he was 30, he was still wandering around Scotland, uh, fishing. Uh, he had, he, he liked walking around. Uh, he had worked in a chemist shop as a youth. And so knew something about plants, a chemist shop being a pharmaceutical um, shop. And, um, you know, uh, eventually he, he came into contact with, uh, the network of elite Scottish scholars who, um, who ran the big uh, institutions, the big scientific institutions in Scotland. And he did this when just by luck, he happened upon a, a kind of a, a stone crypt in, uh, poking out of a riverbank where he was fishing and um, knew enough to find the uh, um, keeper of the, um, boy, I, I should have the book in front of me. Shouldn't I? So, <laughs> Um, the keeper of a museum. What museum was that? Oh, I just, I have, um, I don't know. That wasn't the Royal Botanical. No, no, not later. It was a, it was a museum of antiquities uh, of some kind. And, um, and he, you know, he developed a, a, a little bit of a relationship with that, this keeper of the museum who, you know, it turned out that this crypt was a thousand years old and, and was a good find. And the guy, you know, got three scholarly papers out of it. So it was a, it was a great thing for, um, for both of them. And eventually this, uh, this, um, uh, the keeper of this museum introduced him to, to uh, Isaac Bailey Balfour, who was the, 
the um, head of the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, uh, and a very accomplished and important botanist in Britain. And Forrest managed to convince Balfour to hire him as a gardener on half pay. So he walked from his home some seven miles or so to the garden every day and started working as a gardener. And uh, this, um, uh, but he had higher aspirations, of course, and he wanted to become a plant explorer. Um, Plant explorers had... brought plants from all over the globe to Europe, as, as most people know, and, and to Britain. Uh, they, many of these, um, there were a few commercial concerns who sold plants, uh, exotic plants, um, from all over the world, China included, but uh, China was one of the, the latest places that Europeans began to explore for plants. And, and, uh, um, one of these concerns was called Leech and Sons. Uh, hired a lot of a lot of people, and so this was um, this was something Forrest knew about. So he wanted to do this, and you know he asked Balfour if he knew anybody who who wanted a plant explorer, and Balfour explained to him that this was a very difficult thing to, to position to sort of a, to get. And uh, but uh, but uh, Balfour knew everybody, and a wealthy cotton merchant. Um, named um, uh, B, uh, at one point wrote, wrote Balfour a letter saying he wanted to start a commercial garden. He loved gardening. He wanted to start a commercial garden. And he felt that um, Veach and Sons had not explored China, China sufficiently and he needed somebody to go to China. And, and uh, did did Balfour know anybody? And Balfour introduced Forrest to him. And that's, that's what began Forrest's career. Um, he was a difficult guy. He, um, he got engaged before he went on his first long three-year trip to China and had, um, I think two boys and a girl eventually, but he spent, you know, most of his time really away from home. So he had to figure out how to, how to have the proper kind of home uh, over a distance. And that was a pretty difficult task. Uh, he managed it quite well. I think, uh, he and his wife managed it quite well. Uh, but he didn't really like being at home. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, I don't quite know what else to say about him. Sure. And we'll, we'll sort of revisit yeah. him. Okay. As we work there too. Um, so it's, I think that's a great um, way to set him up. And he becomes um, very associated in the book with um, one kind of plant or one genus, rhododendron. Um, and then we have our other main kind of anchor point for the second half of the book, who also becomes associated with a plant, at least a plant that sets him on the journey that we're going to follow him through, which is Chalmugra. So this is Joseph Francis Charles Rock. And just the highlights for me, I'll kind of summarize um, highlights. He, <laughs> he runs away from home when he's eight. He teaches himself Arabic and Chinese, I mean, among many other things. So there's, there's you know, a lot of really interesting background to his life. But 
He travels the world. He eventually sails for Hawaii with a single gold coin in his pocket. Um, he's hired eventually as the Hawaii Division of Forestry's sole botanist. Um, along the way, I mean, those of us who are interested in material culture and sort of visual culture, there are fascinating little bits to his story that, you know, just kind of come up incidentally. So um, ultimately, in the course of his exploration of Hawaii, he meets a rancher who makes splatter prints of the indigenous plants on Kauai, which is just an amazing thing to try to envision. Um, He publishes his own work on the topic. And then, you know, he's, you sort of, he's, uh, he comes across as a very cantankerous kind of guy um, at at the work. And one of many times he seems like, or maybe not the first, but the, this early time that he um, perceives that he's been slighted when um, the College of Hawaii makes arrangements to transfer this big collection he's been compiling to a museum while he's away, and he he takes off. Now, um, he goes off uh, looking for uh, chalmugra, which is a treatment for leprosy, um, to send seeds back to Hawaii and start a plantation, and this kind of starts this off. Can you say a little bit about um, the importance of chalmugra here, what that is, and um, how that's important to the story, because that's actually for historians of China and Chinese natural history. This is this also becomes a really um, important um, plant uh, that sort of recurs in stories of how a lot of early 20th century um, sinologists who then come back and act as foundational. Um, so, for example, the one of the people who's foundational in the study of um, the book that I have worked on, the Benzao Gangmu also started his career by looking for Chalmugra in China. Um, so it's actually, incidentally, a, a kind of a really important plant for sinological studies without people necessarily knowing that. Um, so what about Chalmugra? Yeah. Well, so there was a leprosy colony in Hawaii started by King Kamehameha II, um, which got a lot of press when Jack London visited it and wrote about it. Um, uh, Forest, I mean, uh, Rock was intent on becoming the foremost authority on Hawaiian indigenous plants. So he visited every island and every region of every island. So he visited this leper colony. And one of the things about this guy, he's a very strange man, but um, he was was fascinated by other people's pain. <laughs> um, and so the lepers fascinated him. It happens that uh, so Chamugra is a um, the seed of a tree that was used in Ayurvedic medicine for various things. The, um, it was um, it was used as a treatment for leprosy, or it, it in Ayurvedic medicine apparently, and this was brought you know into Western medicine through um, the British um, British contact and scholarship on Ayurvedic medicine. At so so at the College of Hawaii, there was a young woman, a a chemist, a scientist named Alice Ball, who developed a way to make the, make an extract from Chalmugra, um, put it in olive oil and inject it. This was really important because for the first time there was, there seemed to be an actual um, treatment for leprosy that could be injected and, um, 
And so, well, Alice Ball herself, you know, she was she was the first uh, first African American um, uh, person to become a um, a to graduate um, in with a chemistry degree. She died quite early, or she died in the mi- middle of her research, and it was it was published by somebody else by her her kind of her advisor. Um, but uh, Rock just um, decided at one point that he just needed to find some chalmugra trees because uh, he wanted to establish a, a plantation of chalmugra in Hawaii and that would supply chalmugra to this um, to the hospitals that tr- that treated lepers from this leper colony. So um, so he needed funding for this. He went to Washington and through contacts, ended up talking with um, uh, John Fairchild, who was the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's uh, Exploration Division. <laughs> um, it was an economic botany exploration division. And uh, convinced Fairchild to, to fund an expedition to Burma and um, Siam to look for Chalmugra trees. So he went off on this expedition to Burma and Siam uh, uh, the first time he had been in that part of the world, though he's a he was a big traveler, uh, and you know found some chalmugra seeds and brought them back <laughs> for established the colony of trees. Though, All right? So somebody listening out there, some enterprising graduate student should do a biography of chalmugra. Make a great book. That's actually true. That would make a great Wouldn't book. Would be great. So fascinating. I when I you know this material. Uh, is dangerous because it can draw you in really deep. And I had to back away from Chalmugra after, after a while, because, you know, I started getting into the Alice ball and where the hell she came from, what her bio, what her story was. And that brought me into sort of Hawaiian history and, and um, African-Americans in Hawaii. Um, and that just opened up another, uh, a whole beautiful, amazing kind of field of history that, well, yeah, Chalmugra, plants will do that. Right. And Chalmugra is a great one. Yeah. So future book. For somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so, so here, this um, story of this sort of brief introduction of Forest and Rock moves us into um, the body of the book as a whole, and it moves us into part one, which is all about forest. Um, now, part one opens with um, this really wonderful juxtaposition of a photograph and an image. And this is a photograph um, that um, Forrest took of somebody on a rope bridge. Um, over a river, and then a um, what's um, he described as a Dongba text that says, "I'm going to completely miss say this, but Lon Lonu L O N V." I don't speak Kashi either, so okay. no. so <laughs> well as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So it says, so it's a Dongba text that says something very specific. Let's put it that way. Um, But these two, juxtaposing these two images next to each other is really striking. Um, And it sets up uh, the the importance of images and visuality and the gaze that's going to recur for the rest of this part. Um, Can you describe for our listeners who may never have seen or heard of this, um, what Dongba script is? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, Yeah. Well. What is Dongba script? Okay. Um, it's a, like deceptively uh, difficult question. Yeah, strangely it is. It's, it's a hard one. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, 
Okay, so Nashi is one of the um, Tibeto-Burman speaking ethnic groups in Southwest China. Nashi are distinct from most of the groups because they came together as a um, basically through a history of conquest. They uh, Lijiang, where which was the center of um, the Nazi world, um, eventually supported a, a dynasty of of uh, folks who um, who began as um, I suppose chiefs of uh, well, chiefs of an area that was basically in the Lijiang Valley, and of, like every successful chiefdom in the region were eventually incorporated into the Chinese uh, state structure through the Tusi system, the, the system of native, native hereditary um, chieftain, chieftainship. Um, during the, the Ming dynasty, the, uh, the Mu uh, lineage of the, uh, w- these, these Nashi chiefs who, who were named Mu really um, embarked on this quite amazing conquest of all of Northwest Yunnan, the the one of the um, one of the passageways between uh, China and Tibet. Well, really, the passageway between between Yunnan and Tibet, um, and they were very successful. And so, this ethnic group kind of coalesced around this this successful um, uh, this successful domination of Northwest Yunnan, and. Um, the history of the Mu chiefs is bound up with the history of writing. This curious, very cool form of writing. All of the Tibeto-Burman groups in the area um, uh, have ritual means for for dealing with the various non-human forces around them that use um, that use language that use. Um, for many of them, quite long texts. Most of the Tibeto-Burman groups around the area, and I'm not talking, we're not really talking about Tibet now, which, um, you know, as everyone knows, the religion, religions, the indigenous religions in Tibet were mainly pretty much wiped out by, by Buddhism or of, eh, that's overstating it. But, um, so these these Tibetan group, Burman, Tibeto-Burman groups have these quite long texts, and some of them wrote them down. Uh, there are many of the E groups wrote them down, and so there are, are six. We recognize really six um, kinds of E writing: uh, Nashi, and some of the associated groups around them also wrote them down. Unlike any of the other scripts in the area, however, Nashi is hieroglyphic in a, in a, in a sense, it's pictures, it's picture writing. Um, that's actually a better way to describe it. So, uh, Nashi writing, um, is composed of, um, verses that are set within little, little boxes. And inside these boxes are little figures of animals and, um, humans and, Plants, uh, unfortunately, not enough, not as many plants as I would I would like, but plants, and 
um, and gods and demons and um, other things. And Nashi, Nashi, uh, um, so so this this system was really something that that Nashi ritualists seem to have invented themselves. It spread to several other much smaller groups. This kind of writing, and so there are several other um, associated languages that also um, can be written in this way that ritualists use to to write in this way. So Dongbat texts are books that are um, physically modeled on on Tibetan. Uh, books, so they're long and thin, basically. They, um, they, and they contain this writing, and the writing is used. Most of it is for ritual purposes. Um, and really, what they did was they they wrote down. They found a, a, a way to write down these chants that also were memorized. The reading, the writing is is not the kind of. It's not really. You have to think of it in a different way than we usually think about writing. Um, most of us, you know, in whatever languages we read, um, we sit down and we read them. Um, some of them are very difficult for us, but nevertheless, uh, we can read them off the page. Don't by writing, it appears that for the most part, you had to know what it's know more or less what it says before you start reading. <laughs> and so, Nashi hieroglyphic script. Um, can be thought of as a kind of very complex memnonic system. Um, uh, perhaps that's a, it, it is writing, but it's also this very complex kind of memnonic system. It's complicated. It's very cool how complicated it is. Um, it, uh, you know, um, it, some, some words are simply words, you know, of, uh, that look like the pictures. Some words are words that sound like words that look like the pictures. Um, there are very many other ways to make words in, in Nashi uh, that are quite involved, um, kind of puzzle-like. Uh, they use combinations of pictures to, to, to make words and, 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 and verses really um, more than words. It's really verse based more than word based and verses. I say, because it's oral it's um, it's uh, they're all done through a kind of recitation and their origins are in these recited texts that were memorized and recited in verse form. Right. Thank you so much. That's great. Um, and this is this is actually a great foundation because Dongba script will come up over and over again yeah. for the rest of the study in really fascinating ways. Now, this chapter um, really starts off by looking at Forrest and Zhao's explorations of Northwest Yunnan um, and goes from this um, juxtaposition of the photograph and the Dongba text that both seem to depict a human figure on a rope bridge and both um, sort of depicting in these visual instantiations journeys that are different kinds of journeys, but they're journeys that are going to go on to inform each other and become interwoven with each other. One, the journey of a, a person um, in the course of a sort of survey or an exploration across a river, and the other, the journey of a child, I think it was, or a, um, yeah. a, a, right, a child who's making the journey to um, the afterlife or the journey into death. Um, now, uh, and these, this relationship uh, between these different modes of 
mapping and these different modes of journeying and the relationship with the earth and with text is something that I think um, shapes the rest of the chapter, uh, the rest of the part one, if not the rest of the book. Now, this we get a, a really interesting um, introduction to Forrest here. He's clearly, as you brought up um, earlier, he's concerned with class. Um, he's got issues with race and racial thinking. He's got a huge, hugely um, problematic temper. At one point, um, he gets really grumpy that the local people won't unlock a temple to let him stay the night. And so he blows the lock off the door with his rifle and he barricades himself in till the next um, day. He's a really interesting um, figure. But the, um, one of the conceptual hearts of this chapter is um, devoted to issues of gaping, um, as you put it, and photography. Um, and you talk here um, about um, the, the importance of the idea of the sort of the visual gape um, and the camera um, that Forrest uses and sort of photography and, and guns. And this, of course, is going to recur more when we talk about rock. Um, now, you, uh, you, you note this as um, he doesn't like being gaped at unless he commanded it. Um, and it became, as you, as you say, a precondition for social exchange without violence for Forrest. Can you talk here about the importance of the idea of this gape and visuality for, for Forrest? Sure, sure. So, you know, at the heart, really, um, the question that I was trying to figure out was why, well, I, I was trying to figure out a lot of things. I mean, partly just, just all of the violence and, and, and stuff in, in Forrest's early, early encounters with Chinese folks. Um, you know, racism obviously was, was part of that on both sides, actually. Um, and, and, uh, but the, the encounters were described very often in visual terms and, and the, the ways that Chinese folks looked at at him were described over and over again. So that was one of the things. But another thing was um, a kind of puzzle about why he ended up working with a group of people who were uneducated um, mountain people, rather than another way he could have gone. So he does end up working with this group of people from one Nasi village uneducated Nashi folks. Um, another way he could, could have gone was actually drawn some of the botanical expertise uh, that was, you know, in, in China at the time and, and work with, um, work with herbalists or other, um, other knowledgeable Chinese folks. Um, and, and uh, many Westerners in this part of China had a, a kind of, um, encounters with Tibeto-Burman and Tibetan people that were that were um, very different from their encounters with Chinese. So part of the puzzle was why why were these encounters so different, and why did Forrest, along with many other Western Western travelers, develop a kind of affection and, and respect for these Tibeto-Burman and Tibetan peoples that at, at the same time as they had these kind of, this kind of racist, sometimes even hatred for, but certainly aversion to um, everybody else in China, right? Um, and so that was part of the puzzle too. And the, what, as it happened, it just turned out that when I looked at the ways that Forrest himself described how people looked at him, that seemed to be the biggest difference. Um, and the, the, 
incidents of violence seem to be precipitated by um, uh, by crowds of people staring, and the cordial um, and comradely relationships um, had um, a very different flavor, and the 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 writing about how people looked was very, very different. So, and, and, and very clear sometimes, I mean, basically, you know, Forrest himself makes the comparison in a Tibetan village. He says, you know, the, the wonderful thing about these folks is they're not staring at me. They simply don't stare. Um, and, uh, and he, so he was aware of, of this as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. And, and this, um, this reciprocal sort of co-creation of, the sort of the gaze of others upon us kind of creating our own image of ourselves and really creating our bodies in some way and vice versa is, is also a theme that I think um, comes up really nicely. And we'll see that when we get to rock as well. Okay. So to sort of, I'm going to, I could keep you for five hours asking you about all the things I want to ask you. So I'll move us to this, the next um, uh, chapter of the book. So the next chapter um, looks at um, and goes into detail in something that you talked about before, which is this history of the movement kings and their conquests and sort of the way that their conquests actually redistribute ethnic groups and um, languages throughout Northwest Yunnan. And I won't um, ask you to talk about this aspect of it, but I'll just say for listeners who haven't had a chance to read this part of the book yet, um, that the, there's a really fascinating discussion here of the problematic um, the problematics of using the kinds of sources that are available for learning about um, the conquests of new kings, right? And the sort of the um, creative ways that these sources have to be sort of read and dealt with in order to really establish anything like a reliable feeling account of this history, which is really interesting. Now, the um, the regions that are that emerge um, out of the story of the conquest of Mu Kings, as you say, coincide with those that um, Zhao and his cohort explored in their botanical um, collecting for forests, right? And so this um, goes on to talk about the visual and textual record, um, the paper landscape that their travels produce. Now, this chapter also um, introduces a plant that's going to be central for the rest of um, Forrest's career and really the rest of his life um, in this region, and that's the, um, the story of rhododendron. Now, can you talk a little bit about um, the centrality of the rhododendron to this story? Because this becomes almost the sort of that which drives him to this kind of Edenic project, right, at the end of toward the, the end of this journey. Yeah. You know, um, some of my friends uh, laugh about rhododendrons because they, you know, I, I just, I didn't know this because I actually didn't know much about plants before I started this. Still don't know that much. But, um, you know, in, a, in a, the United States, rhododendrons seem to be thought of as kind of an old lady's flower or something, you know. But um, in in uh, in Britain at the time, they were one of the plants from China that, um, that could be grown outside of hothouses. This area of China, just as an aside, one of the reasons that it was explored for exotic plants was that it was cold and at the same time botanically extremely interesting. And there were many, many plants that could be grown outside of hothouses. Most of the plants from southern China had to be grown inside house, hothouses in Britain. Britain. Um, in any case, there were there were many um, wealthy sort of landowners in Britain who were fascinated with with 
with rhododendrons, which are extremely varied. There are many, many species and many varieties of the species as well. So they are a, a fascinating group of plants. Um, this uh, forest, um, uh, forest started um, collecting everything. But at one point, one of his sponsors, uh, um, uh, he was sponsored at various points of, of his life by syndicates. And one of his, his the most important sponsors in one of the syndicates was, uh, was interested in rhododendrons only. So he started exploring for rhododendrons only, mainly, well, not for his in his sorry his um concentration on rhododendrons became something that that was about his relationship with this particular sponsor um and i'm i'm i just lost the other part of the question sorry oh no that's okay it's it just um it it gets us um thinking about the importance of rhododendrons actually and this is that's a perfect way that that enough um is a perfect way to sort of get us set up um to understand the the importance of rhododendrons to motivating um uh, Forrest's uh, project and motivating sort of what becomes his choice of where he goes for a lot of his journeys that you recount for us in the book. And they're also not just important for um, his journeys, though, but what you go on to show us in the next chapter, which is a fascinating chapter. It's called The Paper Road, and this is clearly what um, spurred the or inspired the title of the book, is that, among other things, rhododendrons are, wind up becoming not just important to forests' travels, but they become also important to another class of texts that in the next chapter you really kind of beautifully put into dialogue with um, the, uh, the archive that um, Zhao, um, stimulated by Forrest and patronized by Forrest, um, is creating with his travels with his cohort. So the next chapter puts kind of an archive of Dongba ritual texts um, into dialogue with this paper archive of travels in which um, the this kind of generative center of rhododendrons that forest is sort of moving toward and trying to find. This is kind of the promised land, right? This is where he's going to find this sort of revelatory experience that's spurred by rhododendrons. Um, that is mapped onto the land of the gods in which rhododendrons also incidentally become really important. Um, and that's this land of the gods that's mapped out in... Um, Dongba ritual texts. Now, you've talked um, uh, you've talked uh, about um, very helpfully um, Dongba as a ritual language and the nature of Dongba texts. Um, this chapter really introduces um, a very interesting methodology where you're trying to actually read um, read these kinds of travel accounts, one ritual right? And one, the account of Zhao and sort of Forrest's travels. And you're trying to read them um, in dialogue with each other and, and think through the ways that they might have influenced each other, even when we may not have explicit sort of textual documentation of this influence. Um, that's actually fascinating methodologically. And can you talk a little bit about the methodological issues and the conceptual issues that you um, experienced when trying to put these very different kinds of maps into dialogue with each other and use them to read both creatively. Yeah, that's that's right. That's um, that's a wonderful question. I, I want to mention a couple of things to preface um, my my attempt to answer that to talk about that question. The first is, you know, this 
this project that Forrest was engaged in, and this is talking about the set of relationships with, um, with Britain, was scientific as well as commercial. So the rhododendron project he became engaged with became a scientific project as well as a, a commercial project. The scientific part of it um, had to do with a relationship with his patron, Isaac Bailey Balfour, who had hired him at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh. And Balfour himself became fascinated with the, all of these specimens of rhododendron that Forrest was sending to him as well as to his commercial sponsors. Um, and Balfour and Forrest worked together to try to figure out um, how, to, how to think about the, the variety of rhododendrons they were, they were getting geographically. And so eventually Forrest was led through this scientific relationship to think about the, the, the landscape of Yunnan as, um, as concentrating on some kind of point way up in the far Northwest, which, uh, which had been the, the point at which the genus had originated and the point from which it had diffused and, um, and, where it would be most diverse, actually. Um, so that's why this place, you know, was a kind of promised land because it would have the most, uh, the largest variety of rhododendron species up in the far, far northwest, past the border of, of Yunnan and Tibet, north of that border. Um, so that's that's one one kind of part of the puzzle. Another thing about this was that. Um, uh, these explorations were all done as collaborations between Forrest and his group of, of explorers. And very often the group of, you know, especially in later years, the group of explorers would be the ones going off into these, these, um, these very difficult places. While Forrest would be sitting back in, in town in, in the city of Tangye or in the city of Lijiang, um, working on his specimens. So the, 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 while Forrest was an explorer, um, much of the exploration was really done by these other guys. And so the, the question became for me, you know, the question I started out with was, well, I can, I can figure out a lot about what, um, what these, you know, Western botanists were doing as they wandered around this place and how they were looking at this, these, these places and all of that. But it was very difficult to know the other side of the story. What, you know, Zhao Chengzhang and his band of folks were what just what what it was about for them and i spoke about the lack of textual sources that actually came from their hand um so the only solution seemed to be to take what writing there was in their village and try to work from there um, to try to understand how they might have um, looked, you used this kind of this writing, um, how this writing might have influenced the way that they did look at this landscape and the way they walked through it and where they went and all of that. Um, and of course, this writing was done by text and their village ended and their village happened to be um, very close to the center of Dongba textual textual um, production. And it was, um, um, from 
stuff that happened later on, uh, it was clear that their village had tons and tons, hundreds and hundreds of these manuscripts, and that some of them, not the largest amount of them, but some of them were being used over and over again in rituals in this village. So there were some texts that I learned to sort of concentrate on as being the ones that these guys would have heard over and over again. None of them could read them, but they would have heard them over and over again. So, and those texts were about funerals. Um, and those funerals were about sending souls off on journeys as it happens up into the far northern, up north, north, where Nashi ancestors were thought to have come from. Um, and so they contain, um, they contain these journeys, um, over this land, this, this very landscape through places that these guys were actually exploring. It's connected with the history of the Mu conquest of the region too, because that's how um, that's how these places got into these texts was through this conquest, and it's also how Nashi spread up through this region, um, uh, so that these explorers found Nashi who spoke their own dialect of Nashi, the dialect of the conquest, really, in in the regions that they ended up concentrating on the most. Methodologically, it, it's a, it was a very strange and difficult thing to do, to take this group of texts written by botanical explorers and to take this group of, um, of ritual texts written by ritualists in order to um, do ritual stuff in villages and try to put them in kind of parallel with each other. Um, and certainly that, you know, I didn't find some kind of solution about how to do that. Um, I said, I said before, I don't speak Nashi and I don't, and I never tried to actually read Nashi because that is something that I actually think is probably impossible to learn now. It might be possible. There might be some folks who can still do it. Um, most of those guys have died. As it happens, though, before most of those guys died, most of the very learned ones have died, but, uh, Nashi Dongba Research Institute in Lijiang um, conducted a, a, a lengthy project that took several decades of translating, in which they translated um, a huge number of these texts in a really great way with, uh, with, um, with, uh, you know, to be translated them in, into Chinese, but they also um, transcribed them in Nashi and, um, and did word for word sort of correspondence between Nashi and Chinese. Um, and they uh, collected them all in a hundred volume set of really big volumes. And fortunately, my library at the university bought that set. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I, so they, I had, you know, this pile of, really translated, readable, um, actually, texts from this region. In addition, I had a pile of texts that um, another explorer, Joseph Rock, had collected in this village and around it and, um, and translated with the help of some ritualists. Uh, and those translations are also some of them very, very interesting because they were done by, by these priests, these Lumba, who could read this stuff. Um, still, so the so the question is how to read these side by side, and the only answer I found how to read them side by side is to read them as they um, as they encountered 
this landscape that they were both encountering. Um, and I read very few of the Doma texts, uh, actually. Um, they're, they're, there's so many of them, um, but the ones that I did read were ones that 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 did encounter this very landscape uh, by sending ghosts and spirits around it, and um, and at the same time were being read in the village at the time that these explorers were living in their village and coming back to their village from their explorations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And why don't we? I, so there's another. I'll just sort of mention it briefly. There's another fascinating chapter after this that really looks in detail at um, this kind of uh, what happens specifically when Forrest goes to um, find this um, promised land, right? This promised land at the center of generation of rhododendron and um, all the fascinating issues um, that are involved with that. Um, so there's that's, I'll just point that out for listeners as um, a must read. Um, and then we move from there to the story of rock. So let's, you just, um, talked about rock. So let's really get into this a little bit. Um, and because I want to respect your time and not keep you here for another hour, um, what I'll do is just kind of briefly introduce some of the really fascinating things along the way, and then maybe get into this issue of rock and how he treats this Dongba, um, archive, which is so fascinating. Now, part two um, introduces rock. It, use, it looks at rock's use of um, technology, in particular of his gramophone and his camera, to mediate social and bodily relations in his travel. This is fascinating. Um, it really becomes an extension and a kind of um, almost prosthesis of his own body. Um, it's, this is an interesting chapter for people interested in the history of sound, of image, um, and also of filth, right? So this is a, this is a really fascinating account of his preoccupation with filth um, and mucus um, and the sort of theatricality of his, um, his relationships with others and his um, experience with dead bodies, frankly, um, over and over again, which becomes really interesting. It ends with his um, creating a virtual body for himself, as you tell us. And that you sort of, you go on to talk about how he uses photography to mediate a relationship with um, this really interesting figure that he meets, um, who's this head of state and religious leader of Muli in Southwest Sichuan. Can you talk a little bit um, before I before we get to the the Dongba texts um, for which he's so famous and fascinating? Um, can you talk a little bit about this kind of photographic collaboration that he developed with this head of state in Muli? Yeah, yeah, I I, I can. Another preface, really. First, um, you know, my ambition had been to write an actual an history of Western botanical exploration of this area in the early 20th century, and it ended up concentrating on these two guys because they happened to work to to have very close relationships with with um, groups of men from the very same village. So it's the this Nashi village that connects these two particular guys. You know, otherwise it would seem a very strange choice. One guy from Scotland, one guy, this Austrian uh, guy who, you know, became an American. Um, it would seem a strange choice, but the choice is, is based in this village and and actually on these Domba texts that they both um, encounter in various ways. Um, but the Muli chapter is not about these Dongba texts. Um, you know, uh, so Muli is, <laughs> uh, Muli is, so, so, so uh, in distinction from Forrest, Joseph Rock 
um, Joseph Paraki started out exploring the very places that Forrest had explored because he started out working with the very same folks that, that Forrest had hired. He then moved on to work with their sons and nephews. Um, and, and began explorations of other places that, that uh, nobody in this village over their many, many years of exploring this part of China had, had ever been to. And Muli was one of those places. Muli um, was a place he went back to several times. He went to three times altogether. And um, Muli is a kind of multi-ethnic um, Kampa place. Uh, it's in the on the periphery of Kham. Kham is, of course, the the province of eastern Tibet, um, where most of uh, most of the Kampa places were places that were governed by their own um, indigenous sort of system of governance. There are many different systems of governance. All of them. Um, were, you know, thought, I mean, you know, the Chinese, you know, texts all, all have them listed as Tusu, but most of them really didn't think of themselves as Tusu. Uh, you know, uh, the head of Muli was one of these guys. Um, and uh, uh, Muli is another place where it's, uh, there's, um, there's not a very good uh, archive of um, a really great, interesting book has written, it just been uh, come out or came out last year, written by an anthropologist who worked in Muli, and, and finally, you know, sort of describes this place in, in some detail. Uh, yeah, and I've forgotten what the guy's name is. That's okay. Anyway, anyway, so um, so Rock uh, goes to Muli, and Rock is a guy who, and, and he goes with. He's he's taken by um, his his band uh, uh, of. Um, young explorers from this little village near Lijiang. And, you know, actually, Muli, um, I, I, I just said he explored many places that nobody had ever been to, but actually Muli was one of the places that these guys from, from Nuluka had, had been to, so they were familiar with it. Um, Rock uh, immediately encountered the, the hereditary ruler of Muli. Um, who was uh, at the same time as being an hereditary ruler was also a uh, an incarnate incarnate lama um, of a you know sort of minor lineage, and they um, they spoke through translators. Um, Rock spoke Chinese quite well. The Nuluku guys spoke Chinese with him. Uh, one of the new guys, guys uh, knew some Tibetan, knew Tibetan because his mom was Tibetan. The Tibetan he knew was, um, however, quite different from Muli Tibetan. But uh, the 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 ruler's secretary knew Central Tibetan, and somehow they communicated with this one guy from Rock's side who knew enough of sort of a dialect close enough to the dialect of Tibetan that Rock's secretary knew. So. They communicated with difficulty through translators. Um, the the ruler of Muli was fascinated with cameras um, for his own reasons, and he uh, one of those. Well, 
So he already had started out with a fascination with cameras, but he didn't know how to use them. He had several cameras that were brought to him by various people, including a previous botanical explorer, um, some of them quite expensive. And he, um, he had also uh, seen of this famous um, photograph of the 13th Dalai Lama that had um, introduced many Tibetans to the idea that a spiritual and um, and political leader could be depicted in a photograph um, that would have sort of power of its own in, in both political and, and religious realms. So, uh, so he asked Rock to take his photograph, and Rock did that. Rock it Rock um, took lots and lots of photographs of Muli. Um, Rocks had a very um, interesting relationship with photography and made very interesting photos. Um, he made photographs of the of the ruler Muli that were um, that were very um, that were his own kind of clearly his own style, but that also were very close to the style of religious um, depictions of Tibetan. Um, rulers and spiritual leaders in Tanka, in Tibetan um, painting. Uh, they were flat and they were, you know, because the, the ruler of Muli set himself up in his throne, surrounded by uh, objects that had religious significance, um, they, you know, it was, they both, kind of worked on, you know, making the, this into a portrait uh, that would be a portrait that was like the portrait of the 13th Dalai Lama and also like Tanka, that that portrait was also kind of based on. Um, so that was their collaboration, making those portraits, which were published. Some some people might have seen them in the National Geographic. Uh, great, amazing photographs, actually. Um Rock brought the published photographs back to the king, the the uh, ruler of Muli, uh, which we call well. I mean, you can call anything. I call in the book the Great Lama rather than the Grand Lama <laughs> or the King, uh, for various reasons. I mean, he was called a king in Tibetan, and, and but he was also called the Great Lama, really the Big Lama, uh, which seemed a, a better thing to call him. Um, yeah. Great, and that um, that the, the photographs are really striking in that chapter, and it, it, you go on to also show us um, uh, photographs that Rock did um, of of prisoners as well, um, prisoners in the Kong, and um, the right. sort of experience in um, changing his opinion of this ruler and really this uh, this place um, and this society as a result of seeing um, the conditions and photographing. Um, the conditions that these these prisoners were in, which is really um, really fascinating. Now, there's an entire chapter also that I won't um, ask you about, but I will just uh, gesture at and signal for our listeners that looks in detail, um, in really fascinating detail, at some of these people that um, Rock traveled with and at his relationships with them. Um, in particular, um, he talked. You talk at length about his relationship with um, his cook. Yang, um, and the sort of centrality of the cook as a translator and as an interlocutor, and also with um, his companion, Lee, and the the intimacy of that relationship on various levels and, and how, you know, we might 
get at um, or not, and whether it's important at all to get at um, how to read um, that intimacy, both from photographs of Lee that we have that you provide for us, which are fascinating, um, and also of um, things that uh, Rock says in his diaries about his relationship with Lee, and, and interestingly, silences. So this is a really interesting methodological chapter, chapter eight. Um, that's, a, I think, a real model for how we might read silences um, in his you know, silences in a text as indicative of a certain kind of um, intimacy, yeah. which is really interesting as well. Um, so I'll bring us um, to the to the end here, um, the final chapter, and we can talk about uh, and you know at the end we can talk about any aspect of this that you'd like if you want that we haven't gotten to because there's a ton of other stuff in this book that I have many many pages of notes um, that's really fascinating. But it ends with this chapter, Book of the Earth, um, and this starts with um, I, this is really the account of rocks. Um, engagement with and relationship with and translation of um, Dongba text, which is what occupies him for um, the re- this last part of his life. Now, the chapter opens up with um, a really powerful account of um, this event that perhaps motivated him to start really getting seriously interested in Dongba text and perhaps working with them, which is the account of um, his witnessing of two girls drowning themselves in 1929. Um, can you talk about this a little bit and sort of what this this scene and this event and how this might have shaped um, what how he goes on to study Dongba, which is really probably um, responsible for a lot that we know about these texts. Yeah, definitely. It is, it is responsible for that. Um, previous to this incident, Rock had, had no interest in, in these books. Um, Forrest who worked in the same village as I uh, had no interest at all in these books either. Rock um, was a botanist and he, uh, at this time, he was at a kind of point in his life where he, he was, um, he had been on a lot of expeditions. He was um, dissatisfied with his life. He was dissatisfied with botany and the kind of returns he got from it. He had written some pretty successful, uh, he had partly written um, some pretty successful articles for the National Geographic and got some money from them. Um, But uh, he just was sort of um, casting about for what to do with his life. And living in this little village with his group of young men from the village, um, he uh, he was, as I said previously, fascinated with other people's pain and with death. Um, he, though a difficult and it seems cantankerous guy who was very hard to get along with, he also had a ca- capacity for empathy uh, and compassion for other people's pain that did that came out in really remarkable ways sometimes. Um, so he's sitting in his house in this village and he hears somebody crying, calling out on the street and um, he goes to see what's gone on. And, and it turns out these two girls have drowned themselves in a pond. Um, later on, he does a little exploration of this uh, ritual for women and men who drown themselves or I'm sorry, who kill themselves. 
commit suicide because um, they can't marry the person that they want to marry. And there's a history of scholarship on this that's very interesting and that has to do with the Nashi um, encounter with uh, with Chinese kinship and Chinese morality. Um, and, and in fact, this theme of the, the effective or perhaps contemplation of suicide um, by people who can't be with the people who they want to be with um, may, as previous chapters or the previous chapter shows, may have been a theme that actually speaks to him personally, right? I mean, this, this is, you talk about how he himself, like, repeatedly talks about his own contemplation of suicide and how this may or may not be related to his own personal um, frustrations. That's absolutely right. Good point. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, anyway, he, he gets one of his guys to drag these girls out of the pond. Um, and he later has this very disturbing confrontation with the, one of the girl's parents who yell at him and say, what, what are you, what are you doing? You know, um, why did you mess with our girl's body? Um, uh, who are you to do that? And started accusing. So this girl was not from the village um, and accused uh, the villagers in, in, in Nuluk of, of, of killing her. And, um, and this draws rock into this, this, this difficult encounter draws rock into this, this, um, this, this death. And he starts to pay attention to what happened after the death to the funerals. And when he does, he finds out that he, well, he, he basically becomes really fascinated with this um, very kind of um, lengthy and complex sort of ritual procedures that go on after deaths or that went on after deaths in this place. And um, death, both of people who committed suicide which was treated separately and of people who died normally um, was one of the places that Dongba texts were still being used in this place in a, in a, in a really sort of um, thick way. That is that they were used often and people um, engaged with the text themselves actually. Um, uh, uh, that is people who couldn't read them. Ordinary people engage with the text themselves, um, repeating sections of them. And so on. So um, he he started collecting these things, and and he treated them like a botanist. Uh, so he starts out with a taxonomy of them, and uh, found it very frustrating to do because even the titles, it turns out, are really hard to read. Really hard to figure out what the hell the titles are, and what they're supposed to be about, and what ritual they're supposed to belong to, and what spirit they're supposed to be, you know, concerned with, and all of this, which is stuff he tried to figure out. So he, and he can only do any of this um, by developing relationships with Dongba who are the, the folks who read and write this, this material and who are hired by, by ordinary people, by other people to, to conduct rituals. So he works with several Domba. Of course he, you know, he hates them all. Um, and, but eventually he finds one he likes and this guy sticks with him for the rest of the Domba's life. Um, a brilliant guy who has a beautiful hand. Uh, we have many texts who, that were um, copied by this guy. Um, 
And this guy becomes Rock's collaborator for for most of his projects having to do with Doma text, uh, along with other collaborators, which include uh, these young Nashi men who um, some of them become scholars of Domba religion uh, of a new kind, not, not Domba, um, but scholars of Domba religion um, along with rock. So he develops a very um, uh, lengthy and involved collaboration that to work on Domba texts, to work on translating them and uh, collecting them and um, writing books about them. That, and of course, you know, he doesn't acknowledge these collaborators really, but they were, you know, they were absolutely essential to any of these projects. They were really the people who did most of what happened in these projects and had a great hand in a very strong hand in shaping what was, what was done. It wasn't as the rock was sort of calling the shots and they were just working on it either. Um, so we have these crazy books that of translation that were come, came out of this collaboration Um uh, a wonderful, um, strange volume of uh, two-volume work on uh, on rituals for spirits called Su and Lu, Lu, the original inhabitants of the land, and this um, totally amazing dictionary um, uh, are two of the remarkable um, documents that came, uh, books that came out of this collaboration, um, and there are many other books and articles as well. But these are are Two fascinating and, and totally amazing uh, things. That's right. And, and what's um, one of the points that you bring out, I think, really beautifully in this chapter, um, and really throughout the book, is that as he's working with these Dongba and they're um, work, you know, working to write this dictionary and to translate these texts, one of the problems is that these are this is a kind of language that's not like other languages, and that it, you, it doesn't comfortably fit itself into meaning. Right? It's it's yeah. not the case that you look at it and it. it fits this relationship between like text and meaning, exactly. which, right. Um, which is fascinating because then what does it look like? Um, and yeah. give us a great account here of what it looks like, what it can look like to translate texts that don't clearly have meaning in the, you know, in the traditional way we think of uh, language as having. There was a, there was a, I mean, this is very interesting to me. Um, had I not worked with Tibetan Burman folks on their on ritual before, you know, I, I'm, I might have approached these something like in some of the ways that Rock did. Actually, I have approached texts like this in, in ways that Rock did. Let us just looking for what they meant. But really, these texts, meaning was secondary. They were supposed to do stuff, you know, and they meant in order to do stuff. But not everything they did had to um, had to have a kind of corresponding narrative or story or um, or anything kind of, you know, they 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 could do a lot of stuff without, um, without, you know, without the kinds of meaning that we try to make texts um, have. So they are totally fascinating. And the encounter that Rock had with them is fascinating for this reason, because he was trying at, at every point to extract meaning. And his relationship with this Dongba, who worked with him so intensely, um, is totally interesting for this reason, because the Dongba had, it seems, had to learn how to make, do a kind of translation that pulled meaning out of these texts for Rock so that Rock, you know, um, would be satisfied. Um, so the whole thing is, is really, really, truly a, an amazing kind of encounter. Um, 
Well, on that note, um, Eric, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, so it's, uh, I'll, just in order to let you get on with your day, is there anything about the book that we didn't cover? And that there's a ton in the book that we didn't talk about, but is there anything that we didn't cover um, but that you'd especially like to point out for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read it? That's very kind of you to ask. I, I really appreciate the way that you read this book so carefully. That was that's really great. And um, having this conversation with you about the book, it's really the first conversation I've had about it. Um, and that was is, is really nice um, to engage with somebody who's read it so carefully. Um, I don't have anything more that I really want to talk about. We've been here for some time. Thank you. Well, it's been um, completely my pleasure. And I will just say that there's a ton of stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about that readers will also find. It's an incredibly rich work. Um, so what's what are you working on now? What's the next project for you now that you've got this wrapped up? Oh, I, there are two things that I'm doing. Um, one is Unfinished Business. It's a, uh, um, a little book about funeral ritual in this e place that I worked, um, which is something that people are, you know, people in a lot of um, rural places in China are uh, dealing with, um, are, 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 well, you know, a lot of the younger people have left many of the rural places in China. And um, what, the, what, what, one of the main activities that's, that goes on in these rural places is dying. And, um, and it's really important in the, Place that I work, dying is exceptionally important activity that people are engaged with and thinking about and um, working on actively, and it's um, and it's fascinating how they use death and rituals around death to kind of make this place okay to live in and an okay place to live in. It's it's the thing that holds this place together is death at this point. So I'm doing a little uh, a little work on that um, that's uh, that comes out of previous stuff and. Um, uh, one of the things that one of the places that fascinated me um, that I encountered when I wrote the paper road was a uh, a, a, a Tibetan place in Gansu where that had a printing press. So and the printing press really fascinated me. This printing press has, has been destroyed long was destroyed long ago. But there are others that print Tibetan scriptures and that are exceptionally important still in parts of Tibet to distribute um, as places that print and distribute uh, religious material. Exceptionally important. And so there's one in a, in a town in Kham that I would really love to study if it's possible. I've been to, to this town a couple of times and, um, and looked at this extraordinary press, um, which is operating, which is, is extremely important. It was, it was built in the Qing. It's not that old, but it's, um, it's been important for some time. And I'd love to do a project on that because I am, you know, fascinated with the ways that writing and, and landscape kind of converge. And this, if you if you travel in eastern Tibet these days, you see writing everywhere. It's just everywhere um, on this landscape as people erect prayer flags everywhere and um, write on rocks and just write everywhere. Um, and 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 the press is a kind of center of that kind of writing. So well, I'd love to read that book. I mean, there's one um, part of in this book where you talk about this press that involved. Like, 50 people and years and like 80,000, I think, hand-carved blocks to, to print one copy of a collection of Tibetan um, Buddhist scriptures, right? I mean, just yeah, that's right. totally fascinating. It is really cool. We don't think about this kind of printing at all, but it's, it's, an, it's an old one and, and one that uh, 
yeah, that that not that much has been done. Some really great stuff is scholarship has been done on Tibetan, you know, printing, but um, not much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Well, thank you. This has been New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for listening, and we'll virtually see you next time.